You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Stage director John Cox, soprano Amber Wagner, soprano Anna Christie, mezzo-soprano Alice Coote, and tenor Brandon Jovanovich are backstage at Lyric. What you have here, which is so surprising, was surprising to me, was the frank and open discussion in music of uh, female sexuality. And that, I think, was very avant-garde at that time. It might have happened in literature, uh, but you hadn't had this quite so openly on the operatic stage. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos. For those of you not familiar with the Discovery Series, it is a series of panel discussions with the singers, conductors, directors, scholars, and other creative talent from Lyric season. Lyric does one session per opera, and they typically happen a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and are featured as part of this podcast series. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org. And now let's head over to the UBS Tower for this Discovery Series session on Ariadne auf Naxos. The moderator is Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg and broadcaster Roger Pines. Roger? I'm delighted to welcome you to our fourth Discovery Series session of the season devoted to Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos, which we are presenting in our first revival of John Cox's glorious production since we premiered it 13 years ago. Uh, since then, it's also been remounted with great success in Houston and San Francisco. Before we continue, everybody, please turn off your cell phones. Anything else that beeps? If you don't count our uh, various symposia over the years, I think the panel this evening is our largest one ever because we have five people. Um, and we want to maximize our time with them. So you can read their bios in uh, the Ariadna program when you come to the performance. So I will keep the intros very brief. John Cox is one of the world's most admired stage directors. His career inc- has included 10 years as director of productions at Glyndebourne, general administrator and artistic director of Scottish Opera, and principal stage director at Covent Garden. Internationally, he's directed at the Met, La Scala, Opera Australia, and a great many other major houses at Lyric, besides Ariadna. He's also directed Capriccio, Tosca, and Così Fan Tutte. Ryan Opera Center alumna Amber Wagner, our prima donna and Ariadne, scored a great success at Lyric last season as Elsa in Lohengrin. She repeated that role at the 2011 Savonlina Festival in Finland, having debuted in, in Europe last year as Wagner's Brangena in Tristan und Isolde at the Prague State Opera. Earlier this year, Ariadna brought her a triumphant debut at Canadian Opera Company in Toronto. Later this season, she sings her first Sieglinde in Die Valkyrie at Frankfurt Opera. 
Soprano Anna Christie, Arts Erbinetta, triumphed at Lyric earlier this season in her fourth role with the company Offenbach's Olympia. Later this season, she'll be Morgana and Alcina in Bordeaux. She'll also sing Delius's Mass of Life at the Edinburgh Festival. She's covered a wide stylistic range with such prestigious companies as Covent Garden, English National Opera, La Scala, The Met, San Francisco Opera, and Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Mezzo-soprano Alice Coote is portraying the composer in Ariadne. She, that was recently a huge success for her in Toronto. She's also recorded the role for the Chandos label. You'll also remember her remarkable portrayal of Dejanira in Hercules at Lyric last season. She's also appeared here as Humperdinck's Hansel and as Orlovsky in Deflator Mouse. She's bringing her composer to Munich this season, her Hansel to the Met, and her Octavian to Geneva. Branda Jovanovic, who sings the tenor and Bacchus, has been exceptionally successful in his two previous roles at Lyric, Boris in Katya Kabanova and Don Jose in Carmen. He comes to Chicago immediately after singing Don Jose in Munich. This season also includes Don Carlos in Houston, Tosca in Cologne, and Samson and Delilah in Washington. His Glyndebourne portrayal of the prince in Rusalka is now available on CD. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series John Cox, Amber Wagner, Anna Christie, Alice Coote, and Brandon Jovanovic. It's been a while since we've done Ariadne, so a little synopsis is in order, I would say. An opera has been commissioned by the richest man in Vienna to be presented at a lavish banquet in his home. The opera is Ariadne on Naxos, written by a passionately idealistic young composer. Backstage before the premiere, he's distressed by the presence of a troupe of comedians whose performance is to follow the opera. The composer is deeply distressed upon getting official word that, to allow time for a fireworks display, the comic skit and the composer's opera must be performed simultaneously. The composer rushes away in despair, but the performance does proceed... Capricious prima donna is now nobly suffering Ariadne. The egotistical tenor is now the ardent Bacchus. And weaving in and out of the plot are irresistible Cerbonetta and her fellow comedians. John, you have directed a great deal of Richard Strauss in your career, so let me begin by asking you this. If we go back to the audience of 1912 hearing Ariadne for the first time, what do you think would have been the qualities of this piece that would have most surprised them, coming as it did from the composer of Guntram, Zalome, Elektra, and Rosenkamp? Now, put, uh, put me right. Is 1912 was the absolute original uh, with the Moliere play? Right. Yeah, good. Well, they would have been surprised about that, wouldn't they? Because here was something they'd been invited to by... Was he the Prince of Mannheim or the Elector of Mannheim? It was commissioned by some, something rather unexpected, a, a smaller place, out of town anyway. And, the theatre was uh, officially in Stuttgart, wasn't it? Uh, Stuttgart, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, same sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that? Uh, and uh, uh, first of all, they, uh, it was... Uh, uh, Composed of, the entertainment was composed of actors and dancers and singers, as well as the orchestra, of course. And so we, one of the principal characters is uh, uh, Monsieur Jourdain, who wants to be aristocratic, and so he's doing the aristocratic thing and ordering up good dinners and good art for his, uh, uh, for his company and, of course, uh, for good fireworks as well. And it went on for ages. First of all, they wouldn't have liked that. It went on for ages. And then those who liked opera were a bit bored by the play and those who thought that Moliere was great 
were bought by the opera and people generally thought, who are these dancers, you know? So the whole thing got, I think, a little bit confusing for them. And I, that, that's why it was never a great success in that version. And both Hoffmannsthal and, and Strauss rapidly realized that if they were going to get any benefit from all their work, they were going to have to write another shorter version, which was much less hybrid and uh, hope for better box office takings. I was thinking that they would have been flipping out just because the sound was so different, because everything had been such so grand scale, and then suddenly there was this chamber-sized piece, the chamber-sized orchestra. At least. Yeah, it was. It, they might, they might have been. I, I, I think um, one of the things that always struck me uh, about the piece when I first approached it uh, was the uh, the subject matter, because. And then I reminded myself that this all took place, uh, this was written when uh, Freud's uh, clinical practice was at its height uh, and uh, all the um, psychosexual teachings and writings of, say, Kraft, Ebbing and others, but certainly uh, taken up by Freud, um, were right in the middle of uh, the social and artistic ethos. And you're looking at artists like Klimt and Schiele, and uh, you, what you have here, which is so surprising, was surprising to me, was the frank and open discussion in music uh, of uh, female sexuality. This is something which was not familiar to the operatic stage. Uh, you've got uh, a lady, uh, one heroine, the heroine, who's had a, one very, very bad experience uh, with a man for whom she gave up everything and who has been completely traumatised by the fact that he deserted her at the first opportunity. And she is now completely lodged in that fact. Uh, that is her fact of life, and she can't get Oh, she can't get she can't break out of that. So her past has really got her trapped. And then there's this other uh, excellent uh, lady, woman, uh, who has quite the opposite approach to uh, to love affairs. She has as many uh, sexual partners as she can get, and it doesn't seem to do her any harm at all. She always uh, comes out, as it were, on top, and. Um, <laughs> And, 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 of course, putting the two of them together is what the opera is about and, and depicting that conflict. And that, I think, was very avant-garde at that time. It might have happened in literature a bit, of course. You've had Wedekind and you had Strindberg and so on. Uh, but you, uh, you hadn't had this quite so openly on the operatic stage. Thank you. In speaking with our singers, the first thing I need to ask each of you, beginning with Amber and just going down the row, um, can you name or can you describe a passage in your role that gives you so much pleasure that you look forward to singing it more than anything else in the role in every performance? What is that moment where you just cannot wait to get there? Um, I would have to say when we start the duet with Bacchus, it's very beautiful. And it, the tessitura is comfortable. So when we start that, and maybe knowing that in 20 minutes the opera's going to be over, <laughs> and we can stop singing, 
but uh, that music is quite exquisite and is um, it's exciting to sing that and it's exciting to work with someone like Saranger when you're looking in the pit and he's obviously very much enjoying himself. You know, all kidding aside, I, I would have to say personally for me, my duet with the composer and, and the prologue is my favorite part because it's so beautiful and so easy. <laughs> We're going to talk about that a little later. Okay. Yeah, it, it's so atypical of the role. It's just, we will get to it because it's really crucial to the prologue. Alice? Gosh, I don't know, but I think the whole thing is like a big journey for me that it's, it's all one thing. But if there was anything it, the journey takes me to is the question right at the end, in the middle of my aria where I say, what is music? And then I try to answer it. And there's something amazing about the chord change that happens when I say, what is music? And then the, ch- the chord changes as if Strauss is about to try and answer it. And that is always magic for me. Brandon? For me, I, the, uh, I really, the, the, the tenor in this uh, opera is uh, rather short, uh, short but very intense uh, music. And I wish, I wish uh, Strauss was alive so I could talk to him about why he didn't like tenors too much. But <laughs> there, there's a, uh, in, the, in the duet at the end, there's a, uh, just, just the last couple phrases. I have a little, uh, uh, another short duet with, uh, with Ariadne and then a little line uh, that, that kind of finishes off saying, I'll, you'll, the stars will die before you'll die out of my arms. And, um, and that's, that's probably my favorite, the, 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 those two. Amber, in the prologue, you are the prima donna. What exactly is her problem? (laughs) I do have to say that that is probably my favorite part of the opera because she's just so obnoxious. And I mean, I rarely, most of the music I sing is not funny. And so it's a chance for me just to go over the top. And I play a lot against Anna with all of her antics that she does. And we've just had a lot of fun. But she's, I think she just takes herself too seriously. She's very self-important. She's uh, the star of this opera. And what is this? Coming in and dancing all over the stage. And there's one point where she's having her corset tightened. And, you know, the, the soprano just, that's just, a, she's just above that. You know, she doesn't have any time for that. And it's just so much fun. So I think it's just because she's very self-important. And all of that is trivial to her. Does she try somehow to solve her difficulties or get what she wants? What does she try to do? No, she just keeps making these interjections onto the stage saying, does anybody know who I am? Where's the count? And she keeps repeating herself and no one listens to her. And that's why it's really funny. And then she goes off on Zerbinetta at the very end, right before the composer sings the aria saying, well, I'm not going to appear on stage with this creature. And still, the music learner's like, okay, well, just get on with it. We have to do this. And he ushers her off stage. But no one really listens to her outbursts of, does anybody know who I am here? <laughs> you know, she's just self-important. Um, Anna, the, the Zerbinetta of the prologue is a fascinating mix of character traits, I would say. What, what aspects of her do you think are most important to communicate to your audience in the prologue? Well, initially, obviously, you just kind of have to set up who she is and what her purpose is um, in this setting. And um, I just kind of introduce her as kind of a snappy, sharp, <laughs> take-in-charge kind of kind of girl and um, kind of 
knows exactly what's going on and knows exactly what to do in any given situation. And so therefore the change in the, in the um, plan for the show is nothing but excitement for her. She thinks that is fantastic. That's the thing we do the best is to mix things up like that just on the fly. And, um, and then I think we'll get into this later, but um, it, you see that side of her, which is very one way and, and also sets up what you see of her later when she talk, starts talking about love in Act 2 um, or her kind of love. <laughs> and, uh, but then in, in her interaction with the composer later on in Act 1, you, you do see a side of her that could be different, could have more depth and heart, um, but we'll, we'll get into that. Alice, we see from the beginning that the composer is pretty intense, very excitable. So let me ask you sort of the same thing that I was asking Amber. What is motivating him throughout the prologue, and is is he at all successful in getting anything he wants and needs? No. (laughs) In a word? But, uh, yeah, I mean, he is incredibly excited. Of course he is, because I think really it's his first opera. This is it. It's going to happen. He's doing his final tweaks um, but he doesn't, he doesn't succeed in getting anything that he wants in the prologue. But I don't think he really knows what he wants. Well, he doesn't succeed in any, getting anything that he thinks he wants. What he thinks he wants is his opera mounted exactly as he's, had it, as he's written it. And this incredible transcendent experience, transcendent experience will happen for everyone. And they will all see the deep meaning of life through his piece of art. But, it, I mean, that just doesn't happen. But, I mean, I think Strauss is... is it reminds me a lot of, of um, maybe De Rosencavalier, where Strauss is showing what he has learned as a composer, what he has learned as a human being in seeing human beings fail, in seeing in the crack between somebody's aspirations for what they want in life, in love, in whatever it may be, and between what actually happens uh, is is the magic is is where humanity is 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 displayed in its deepest sense. So, in the fact that you see him completely f- lose his his her whole idea of what is going to happen, and yet in that moment, perhaps falls in love for the first time, or at least sees that the world. Uh, he grows as a human being. He Maybe he's quite young, but he, he sees for the first time that the world is not all that he would think it would be, that it was black and white, that it, if one is good, then one is only good, or if one is bad, one is only bad, and that he his, his incredibly intense, almost teenage, uh, existential obsession, which I think I had about that age as well, I, could, I, I, I remember saying to my sister, well, it wouldn't matter if you died, it does nothing matters nothing matters you know nothing matters and i think he's like that life is like this love will solve everything it's, it's this it's it's only this and he gets slapped right in the face the carpet is taken completely from beneath him in every philosophical sense in every sense as a person as well and he i think he does fall in love whether it's a true love i don't know but it's a true love in the moment and to fall in love with the person that he would assume would be the person who sabotages in his entire life aspiration is a pretty major event so 
No, he doesn't, but he does, actually. I think he, he gets everything he, he ever would need for the next stage in his journey, which you don't see. Wow, thank you. Um, Brandon, we don't see much of you in the prologue as the tenor, but we do get a sort of attitude from the tenor. How would you describe it? Oh, definitely, definitely. It's, it's short but sweet. It's your quintessential... Uh, I'd say a quintessential caricature of an operatic tenor. He's uh, ill-tempered, uh, uh, crass, uh, self-centered, backstabbing. Uh, it ultimately came down to typecasting, and I, uh, I, I find that it, it's no, it's it's an absolute hoot to play, and I, I love. Although I have basically three short appearances. I set up the rest of the opera for my character. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Can you explain that wonderful little exchange that involves you, Ariadna, or Prima Donna, and the music master where you're talking about each other's part and what should happen? Because I think that's the funniest thing in the prologue. Yeah, there's, there's now that uh, once we find out that the opera and the, uh, 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 and, and the play are going to be combined, it's a... Uh, there's going to be some cutting involved. And both uh, Ariadne and I, or the, the prima donna and I, the tenor, are looking out for their own self-interest, and we're uh, each trying to... I, I first uh, approach the composer and say, listen, you've got to cut Ariadne's part. No one can stand that lady. And, uh, and then, meanwhile, she's working on the... Yeah, she uh, does the exact same thing. She's like, I oh, sing's too loud, and just cut it. Yeah, that's right. And they're going on at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'm stuck in the middle. <laughs> John, the, John, the visual side of this production is directly related to the concept of transformation, which I know is crucial to you in revealing exactly what this opera is really about. So can you explain why that idea is, is vital? I think, um, to, to me, it was the most inspiring idea and the most vital idea because the word transformation, and it's the same in German, Verwandlung, uh, as well as uh, having a kind of general philosophical meaning, uh, has a very specific theatrical meaning. Uh, there, is, uh, a, there is a habit, there is a, a, a tradition in all theatre. It's part of, of what theatre is, that it can do transformations. It has that magic. You might do it by a lighting change, you might do it by uh, having a scrim, which you light in a different way, or you, or you do it by lighting in any case. You transform the scene. There's a scenic transformation is really one of the things we all used to go to the theatre for, uh, and it's, it's, the, it's one of the most essential things of popular theatre, the transformation. And I was intrigued by the fact the, 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 the meaning, the double meaning, if you like, uh, the, the dual meaning of this, of this uh, word, transformation, in a theatrical context. And uh, so, whereas in the, uh, in the libretto as written, the whole thing is supposed to take place in a, a large room in the uh, house of the richest man in Vienna, uh, I thought that was a bit of a waste of an opportunity. Uh, and since I was, well, the first time I ever did this, I was working at Glyndebourne, uh, working for a very rich man who liked to do this sort of thing called John Christie. And, but what he'd done is he had actually built a theatre alongside the house. So I thought, let's just imagine that Jourdain had built a, a little chamber theatre for himself in, in which he could put on his, uh, 
his entertainments. And that, of course, enabled me to pursue uh, metaphorically, if you like, uh, the, the idea of transformation so that the transformation uh, which takes place within the characters on stage, the transformative power of love, we just displace that into the transformative power of the theatre so that the one thing represents the other. And, and uh, I got completely obsessed with this idea of, of the theatre and life being like this, you know. Uh, so that's how all that came about. And, and then um, I couldn't do what I wanted to do at Glyndebourne. It was in those days, it was too small uh, and under-equipped and an awkward shape, whereas uh, when I was asked to, to do it some years later here in Chicago, suddenly there was the possibility of realising the whole idea and uh, putting the whole, the, the whole stage on stage uh, and the backstage as well, so the whole thing becomes uh, a, a unity. Uh, and uh, so there you are. You get, you get your transformations both psychologically, emotionally and visually. And what you have as an audience is the most beautiful-looking Ariadne production there really has ever been. It's the most, and the most imaginative. It's, I mean, it's John's genius and that of Robert Preziola, our designer that has put this together. It's glorious. Thank you. Um, the emotional center of the prologue, I would say, is the duet that we've referred to already between Cerbonetta and the composer, which is, it's sort of a still point in the middle of a lot of craziness. So let me ask both Anna and Alice, what do we learn about each of the characters in the course of those five minutes, that short exchange that they have? Well, mm, well, for, for my character, I think up to that point I've been incredibly lofty and incredibly uh, high-principled and absolutely nothing, I can't take anything other than what it will happen in high art. And, and then suddenly when confronted actually with the things that I've been talking about, i.e. love and, well, love, actually. This look, one look, is an incredible piece of writing. Uh, I'm completely thrown. So you see this person who says he's got everything completely philosophically sorted, and yet one look from an attractive girl or a girl that I've noticed at the beginning of the prologue actually the look that really looks into me uh, disarms me completely and from that point onwards I start to relate to everything around me like a human being with no barriers so you I think you almost see the composer grow up actually before your eyes become open to another human being become vulnerable in a way that he would never have done if he hadn't been pushed by this extraordinary lady here. She's transformed. The composer is transformed. It tra happens there. I'm absolutely transformed. And it's your, it's your idea, isn't it? Transformation. Stürzt sie hinein ins Geheimnis der Verwandlung. I mean, that's where that's I've just the absolute been seed of the thing. singing about it. I've absolutely yeah, yeah. been championing this idea that we can all be transformed by love against everyone who's saying, no, it's all about dance. You've got to get high leg kicks. You've got to do this, whatever. And when faced with love, because she's such a strong lady, and she n n totally nails me in the moment, uh, I am indeed completely transformed. And it, it happens 
with this in this incredible climax in, in the orchestra that you will hear just before this duet starts, where the look happens and it, it's it's written in the music. It's it's amazing. And I think that's where we see um, Serena to her the other side of her that she actually has a heart, and um, I think that a lot of times you're never entirely sure if she's for real. You don't entirely know if she's leading him on or if she really means it. Um, and that's kind of the secret and or mystery of what's, I think, what is the tension in the scene um, dramatically. Um, and uh, she, Serbinetta, unlocks the door to him by saying, you know, I, I'm one way on stage, but who's to say how I really am when it's just me? Um, so she she opens that door to him in that way, and then I think what you're going to ask next about ich muss fort, I must I have to go. Um, so so let me ask both yeah. of you if there were no time constraint. I mean, Serbinetta is the one who ends the conversation, uh, but if there were no time constraint, would it go any further? I don't think so because I don't. I, I do. I, <laughs> no. <laughs> Because I, the guy. I don't consider it a time constraint. I think she says I must go because she needs she doesn't want this to go any further. But if there was no time constraint, no, I is think that the question. No, right? But I don't. I think that it's not about time. No, it would be the end of Zerbinetta's career. It would be the end of Zerbinetta's career if she. But if nobody came in the room, if nobody came ah. in the room, what? I think that we would have more of a conversation. I, if you just told me that you were going to be... She just tells me that she is the sort of woman that if she found the right man, she would be true until the end. I don't think I would let this woman go. For a while, anyway. I'm sure she would leave. <laughs> she would leave me eventually. Like in maybe three hours. But I would definitely want to get to the bottom of it, being the person that I am. Oh, yes. Um... Moving on to the title role, um, we go to the opera proper and we meet our heroine Ariadna and after the nymphs trio, there she is with the first of her two monologues. And those two monologues are separated by barely 10 minutes. Um, what is the difference between the two as far as her state of mind is concerned? Well, she starts out um, describing Tezois in Ein Schönes Far, and she's saying that, you know, they walked in light and love, and then she switches gears very quickly because she just, she wants to forget that part because he abandoned her on this island. And so she sets up this scene that she's waiting for the messenger of death to come and retrieve her. That's monologue number two. That's monologue number two. And she goes into explaining. You know, meanwhile, while all the, the comedian business is going on and they're trying to cheer her up, and um, then she goes into explaining that there's this realm of death, and she's she's waiting uh, for this for the messenger to come and take her, and she'll be relieved of this burdensome life, and and then she'll abide forever. Her soul will abide forever with with uh, the messenger, and then her body will just be left in that grotto. So that's what she sets up before she leaves, and before Bacchus arrives. And they're they're musically. Quite uh, different at the also. They are quite they? different. Yeah. I mean, and Shunasvar starts out. It's really beautiful, and it starts out while you're with these 
enormously amazing chords that all of a sudden switch and take you by surprise. And even though I know what's coming, every time I sing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just, that's amazing. Um, and then uh, she switches really quickly because she's kind of frustrated with herself that she's reflecting on this again. And so she pulls it together as she sets up this next scene to describe this realm of death, which is darker. And then at the end of that, though, at the end of her second monologue, it, she bursts into this this joyous bit of, uh, you know, telling, I'm soon going to be relieved of this life. So she gets kind of excited that she knows that time is coming. And then she ends the aria, you know, and it's it's very still and quiet. And then the comedians come on and that's delightful. (laughs) Um, Brandon, what sorts of things does uh, oh no! I should, before I get to that, I, let me just ask you: When you appear, when you appear for the first time as Bacchus, you explain to uh, us literally where you are coming from. I mean, he had a bit of an adventure before he ever got to Ariadne. Um, can you describe a bit what he's experienced before he encounters her? Right. This. This is. We were talking about this earlier because I. I, <clears throat> and I was trying to find how. I've I come to be in this opera. I, I am Bacchus, and I'm coming from the island of Circe, where she. It's more of a um, in Homer's Odyssey. She uh, she ensnares Ulysses for a year, and uh, and they stay there. And uh, she turns men into pigs through a combination of magic and potions, and uh, and a wand, uh, depending on what. Uh, what story you're reading, but uh, this has been kind of a condensed version of that tale. I was on the island for a day, uh, and uh, and then I've made my escape, and I now come before uh, I've I finally wandered uh, just off to the next island, apparently, and I think I see Circe again, maybe in dis- in in a different guise, and uh, and I'm not going to uh, fall for her fall for her tricks again. So I, I call to her, Tsirtse, Tsirtse. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what sorts of things do you say to Ariadne in order to make her comfortable with you and understand the kind of being that you are? Ultimately, the thing I say that makes her the most comfortable is, hey, you're beautiful, baby. And that's just a, uh, that's not necessarily a literal translation there. But uh, I, I say, du schönes Wesen, you're a beautiful creature. And, and she, uh, and ultimately, I, I just have a, a honeyed tongue in this, uh, in this opera. I'm either totally lost, I don't know who I am, what I'm doing there, or where I come from, and then all of a sudden it kind of hits me that I'm with one of the most beautiful women uh, to ever exist. And, uh, and I the line that gets me, uh, which I say more than once, is the uh, the stars would sooner die than you'll uh, die uh, than than I'll let than I'll than you'll leave my arms than you'll die out of my arms, and uh, I don't know. I think that's kind of a winner right there. I think. And you do you do finally identify yourself to her as a god, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it kind of you know it's it's one of the most convoluted. Uh, it's like a very bad sitcom plot. I mean, I I. I <laughs> I don't know who I am. She thinks I'm somebody else, and then she thinks I'm somebody else, and then she realizes that uh, no, it's my first guess. You're probably Hermes, and and I uh, I'm not quite sure. I think she's Terze, but uh, then I find out she's not. But hey, we love each other. Let's run off and have a beautiful life together. It's 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 a very uh, it's it's. But in that is some of the most glorious music, and and although it's a. Uh, 
uh, almost a farcical uh, plot setting. It's it's really a uh, it's really once again a transformative uh, twenty minutes of music and uh, discovery. Amber, you really do then make in the course of that duet a kind of emotional journey. Can you talk about how your feelings change from the time he arrives to the end and how you sort of unbend and sort of yield to him? Well, it's kind of 20 minutes of a misunderstanding. I mean, he comes in and she just assumes that he knows who he is. You know, you're just the messenger of death and he has no idea who he is or who she is and she you know when he first comes on she's like oh it's taste voice again then she's like no it's not and then she you know they they both kind of have a giant 20 minute misunderstanding singing to each other and then i guess they just decide well we're just gonna love each other and run off but it's not i mean they they work it out but she keeps talking to him like he's supposed to know who he is you know she keeps saying so how are how are you gonna How's the transformation going to happen here? You're going to do it with your staff, with your hand, with the drink, and he's like, "I'm, I'm sorry, I'm confused." Like, so they do this back and forth, but she continues with her whole theme of this transformation that you're gonna, you're gonna take my soul away from here, and I won't have to be, you know, burdened with this sadness anymore. And then I think they finally get it. She gets it. He gets it. It's interesting. <laughs> um, he, he does a few good tricks. Yeah, yeah, doesn't he? I mean, he. Oh yeah, that's true. In this show, you in this production, you yeah, in this production. So, John, it's it's basically twenty minutes of dialogue between them, with a couple of little interjections uh, from Terabinetta. So, um, the point that I I wanted to get at with this, with those twenty minutes, what can you as a director do to create visual interest in the course of the scene, and above all, at the end, because the libretto is asking you. Uh, is telling you that they ascend to heaven, and that's not exactly practical in terms of stagecraft. So what's the solution to that? Well, they just ascend to heaven, and we did it. You'll see. But truly, uh, uh, the, the to be... <laughs> Serious about this, the, the the whole question of the last twenty minutes, especially in the, you know in this opera, certainly the, 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 some of the earlier productions I'd ever seen in my younger days, it, it was a nightmare contemplating the production of the last twenty minutes because it was just a kind of stand and sing fest between two, uh, however excellent artists who've got to concentrate on singing it really well. And there's not much point in asking them to scamper around. So basically, what 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 I realised my task was was to take, as, as I implied earlier, uh, that to take the idea of transformation and do it, so that uh, if at any point uh, Ariadne has any doubt or any hesitation about uh, believing that this is the man for her then an, an, there will be another transformation on stage which will zap her so hard that she thinks, he must be. God, he's done it again. Look! And, you know, so, of course, that is, is essentially for the audience, the audience's consumption as well. But it also works for her. He has got... It's a, it's a magic, isn't it? It's a magic you have to uh, deliver, and it's a magic that... And that was my task. I considered it my task uh, through my designer and my lighting designer and the perfectly fabulous crew here. Uh, to, to, we had to deliver this, and 
so that's that's what we do. Have I answered your question yet? I think so. So, so everybody, you will have to wait and come to the performance to see the miraculous. Uh, way this end is done between the work, with John's work and Robert Perziola's work and our lighting designer Dwayne Schuler's work. It's just, it takes your breath away. And it's really become sort of legendary in Strauss productions. The end of this production, people talk, have talked about ever since we did it way back in, I think, 1998. Nobody has ever forgotten the end of this Ariadne. Uh, but we haven't spoken all that much so far about the music and the vocalism up to now, so let me spend a little time with that. Alice, you have one glorious phrase to sing after another in the prologue, um, but what portions of the music do you consider sort of most quintessentially Straussian, for lack of a better word, and why? I couldn't possibly choose one section or of any opera, or not even of my role, of, 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 of something that is quintessentially Straussian, because what is quintessentially Straussian is a mixture of so many things, by definition, this quicksilver changing between comedy between something incredibly meant and truthful and honest and immensely heroic music as well. I mean, and a million other things in between that, uh, either end. So I I go through everything. I think what perhaps is quite quintessentially Straussian, now I think about it, is that the things that he always does in his, his great operas is this sort of conversational thing where you 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 actually you're not really singing you're almost speaking and it sounds like somebody speaking it sounds that natural so in between these incredibly lyrical pieces that I have to sing which I of course adore singing because I get to sing quite almost in in the soprano range and it's quite fun I get to really go for it which I I very rarely get to do which I, I love to sing this incredible poetry that that talks about these unknown things that we all long for and that he he keeps repeating these amazing bits of poetry because no one is believing him in the room. No one is believing these these intensely held beliefs. And I, I, that music is so deeply felt that I feel that that is probably quintessentially Straussian because it seems like he endows my role with what he truly believes as a person. But what he also truly believes as a person, because he's written this opera and many other operas like it, is... Uh, the other side of the coin, which is that we are all human, that we are all imperfect, that we are all deeply flawed. And there's some ridiculous exchanges that I have with some of the people I'm trying to get what I want done, like bring me the bring me the violinists. And the, and the, the lackey says, well, you know, I can't bring you the violins themselves because, you know, the, the instrument themselves because they can't walk because they haven't got any legs. And ridiculous stuff like that. So all of it's quintessentially Straussian and... That's the whole thing is is Strauss. I think there's such an amazing contrast uh, in what you're asked to do in this role versus what you had to do last year when you were Dejanira and Hercules for us, in the sense that there you were singing Handel for three hours with six or seven arias, then here you are having to do it all in 45 minutes. So what is the difference that you experience in in terms of pacing? Is the composer tricky to pace? Yes. Well, I just, by the end of it, I can hardly, I want to just a chair right by the point where I walk off the the stage so I can just sit down because I can't walk (laughs) after 
I've done it. I want to just like... <gasps> so what I would like is some water on tap, people slapping me every few minutes as I get past one bit and then go on to the next bit. But luckily, he's written in lots of other stuff going on. So I have my little bits where I launch my myself and then I come back. Uh, but really, I just have to try and sing well. Uh, otherwise, if I if I get too involved in the emotion, even though I desperately want to because I, I love it so much, I love everything that he's saying and the things that I believe too, I'm perhaps a bit too earnest about these things as well, that I, I, if I really went for it in every sense, I, w- I wouldn't be able to get through it. So I have to think, no, don't, don't, just, okay, just think of a clean start to this note, think, I don't get all your emotion into it. So it's it's a balance between truly believing what you're saying and just going, no, okay, I truly believe it, but I'm not going to put my whole my whole being into it, which is what singing singing is in opera anyway, but it's just like a 40-minute burst of that for me. This is why I love the Discovery series, because you really get the inside story. <laughs> Thank you. Anna, um, Strauss seldom, if ever, made life easy for his singers, although he did have a lifelong love affair with soprano voice and was married to a soprano. Um, so provided, then, that you have, that one has the large range for Zerbinetta and the flexibility, is it, in fact, well-written? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I pondered this question because, yes, it's well written for the voice type that it was written for in the sense that the phrases pretty much roll trippingly. The problem is that they don't stop ever. (laughs) So... In that sense, it's the, just, the, just the fact that it is relentless. There is there's no time to stop anywhere. You think, I just, I just need to swallow. I just, <laughs> That's oh the God, biggest I have problem to keep going. Swallowing. And uh, I just, I need a little moisture in my throat, something. <laughs> um, uh, but no, because you have another 10 minutes to sing. And... So, I mean, I don't think that Serbinetta is considered the hardest role in this repertoire for nothing. Um, she sings a quintet uh, where she gets all winded and everything, and then she sings, I don't know, how long is it? 15 minutes? 13 minutes. minutes 13 here, minutes, yeah. okay, without stopping ever. Um, and then she goes on to sing another quintet, but I promise you by that point, I just don't care, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I've done my bit, and uh, whatever comes next is going to come out. (laughs) Um, But what I have noticed uh, rehearsing this role is that, yes, you get to the end of the quintet, and you go, okay, all right, here we go, and you start. And you get a third of the way through the aria, and you think, wow, I'm already really tired. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) And you get three-quarters of the way through the aria, and you think, wow, (laughs) I'm just (laughs) keep going just keep singing and um, what I appreciate about the way Strauss wrote it that if in fact he was going to make it so hard that there was never going to be a break ever that at the end the last four pages which are the hardest pages of the aria in my opinion anyway he's written in tiny little breaks like two or three measures and at that point you just take whatever you can get (laughs) so it's just enough time to kind of go ah okay 
and then sing something really difficult and then have another, oh, all right, and then sing the end. And then you're done. <laughs> Whew. Okay. So that's kind of how I sense that, yes, it was well written. It's really hard, but he did, at the end, when you think you're not going to make it, he did write in a few places where you can give it your all. <laughs> um, the aria is in distinct sections. I look at it as, I guess, four major sections of it. So what are the transitions in her thoughts that inspire her to move from one section to another? Right. Well, um, and absolutely. I mean, I, I coached this with Rary Grist, and, who was an amazing Serbineta, and she told me, just think of it as a series of scenes. It's not one long piece. It's you do one scene, finish it, and do the next one. And I think that it makes perfect sense because the first bit is with Ariadne and it's more conversational. She's making fun of her. And then she kind of moves into, don't you see we're in this together, you know, women. Um, and then that's section one. And then the next section is um, goes into Tserbineta's view of love and how she sees herself and her own feelings. Um, and then that's that section. And then the next section is, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you about these guys um, and and um, how they made me feel. And, and, and that's when she starts moving into the transformation, I think, um, bit. And then the end is more this kind of majestic... Finally, when she surrenders and she kind of plays that out and, and you see how she can be so affected. And, and I had said to you before, it's like an ode to girl power. And I feel that. And she says, you know, that, that you know, we're in this together. Men are awful, <laughs> all that stuff. And then she says, but really, you know, are we that far from that, <laughs> really? Um, and I think that in that sense knowing what you want and being able to get it and being in charge and being strong as, as a woman is, is what I meant by that, by that phrase as an ode to girl power. But, in the, but on the flip side of that, she is able to give and surrender of herself um, when that man comes along. And I think that that's ultimately what a woman should want. <laughs> the funny thing is she says that when he comes along, when the new one comes along, we surrender without a word. This is after talking to us for 13 minutes. Um, yeah. How ironic. You either sing or you make love. You don't try and do them both at the same time, I suspect. <laughs> Brandon, in, in your comments for Lyric Opera's magazine, you said that you were pretty thrilled by Bacchus's music and that it made you think of the score to the movie Superman. Yeah, Can you yeah, develop that a bit? <laughs> I don't really know the score to the movie of Superman. You know what it is? Is it's the feeling? I guess it's that whole. It's the whole heroic aspect of Bacchus, of the music that Strauss is capable of writing, and uh, and I just you know when I think of uh, when I think of the boat crossing the stage uh, in. in in this opera, it, it's this music, bomb, 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 bomb. It's fantastic, and and it feels like a scene. I can see a you know Superman taking off and flying up, you know, saving, picking up a building and saving it. And um, I, 
I just, the music can be so enveloping sometimes uh, uh, that, that Strauss writes. And it's funny because this year I've done a lot of, uh, I've done, I, I've done, well, just since just since this summer, I did my first Wagner pieces, and, the, and that's always a large orchestra. Then I, I just I sang a Mahler's Eighth, which is not a small uh, symphony by any means. As I think there was 120 people uh, playing, and then there was 468 voices, qu- uh, choir singing. But man, there are times in this 39-piece band that it feels like everything you know, Wagner and Mahler combined. It, it, it gets so large; it feels just gigantic and that's both um nerve-wracking on one hand but it's also very liberating on another and it's it's this music if you uh approach it right you can ride it ride the you you become a part of it and i just i I really enjoy uh that aspect of uh, strauss's writing and of bacchus in particular amber the, the vocal history of your role is really interesting because I can think of lyric sopranos and spinto sopranos and dramatic sopranos who have been successful singing Ariana. So do you find that there are elements of all three categories that are part of it? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of has the splattering of requirements from all of those voice types. It starts out very, very low, and, but it requires an immense amount of delicate... Uh, maneuvering through parts of it because he wrote dynamics so much of the time it's piano or mezzo piano which I didn't really pay attention to the first time I did it I was like whatever I'm just gonna bang my way through it and then Sir Andrew was like you need to go look at those dynamic markings and I'm like oh okay yeah totes so now I look I've looked at it and it's actually so much more interesting imagine that if you sing it the way that he wrote it which is so much of the time, because the orchestration is rather small, even though sometimes, especially in the duet part, it does feel larger. But in the part where it's just the top of the opera and Ariadne's on the stage with the comedians, it's you really don't hear a lot. There's a lot of flutes and strings. And so it's so much more interesting if you pay attention and you're delicate in your delivery, which, which was why lyric sopranos are successful at it, because they can do these floaty things. And then when you get into the duet with Bacchus, I mean, it's... It's a bit more um, probably spinto dramatic by that point because you're, you know, you're singing with the tenor, so you gotta have more volume. What I love also is the contrast, but in these monologues, but to the, the first monologue, there's so much that's incredibly intimate in it, yeah. and then in the second monologue, you have, in this, at least in the final section of it, Escape Reich, you have one of the grandest moments that he ever wrote for a soprano. Yeah, you have that beautiful line where you go. And it's, and it's just gorgeous, and that's definitely, you switch gears. Uh, it's definitely tested me as a soprano as far as switching gears from singing more delicate to full voice to, to kind of playing around with your instrument and, and pushing yourself, pushing your, your own boundaries and saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push my own artistry here to, to accomplish something that the composer wrote because it's really beautiful. And I often find that if I'm listening to a recording of it, and if I feel like that's not very inspiring, it's probably because they're singing maybe one-dimensionally at times when they should be paying attention to how Strauss structured the music. It's, and it takes so much time with this score. I mean, to live with this music, it's just not, it's not written, you know, duh, like other composers, but it's, 
it takes so much time to literally get yourself married with this score. And I don't know why, if it's just because Strauss, because of the way he wrote, it's, it was quite a gear shift coming off of Wagner going into Strauss. So I didn't expect that. There's one hugely important person that we haven't really talked about very much. And so I wanted to direct this initially to John, because, you know, we always talk about Strauss's Ariadne of Noxus. It's not. It's Strauss's and Hoffmann's Stahl's Ariadne of Noxus. So, John, in what episodes of this libretto does the brilliance of his language and his sensitivity as a human being impress you the most that's hard to, that's hard to say um because it's all it's, you know it's all equally amazing to me um but uh, i suppose that one of the, it, it does give to wonder give, that, that having written the whole thing very much influenced by his idol moliere uh to realize that that whole initial that whole first version was a big mistake and to have then come back to it and been so unbelievably creative and original in condensing all all of that stuff that we no longer have into one episode uh, and namely the prologue uh, which has all the richness of dialogue of a straightforward play um, and like uh, one or two of, of, of the cast of, of my colleagues were saying just now, the variety, especially, of course, Alice has to cope with it, but, but you all do, the variety of style of delivery, it, it's, it is a playwright at work. And uh, the, uh, the, the prologue is a play which happens to be sung, most of it. And when it's not sung in the, the, the role of the Haushofmeister, uh, it, that doesn't seem to be unnatural. He comes from above stairs. It's like, <laughs> it's like above stairs and below stairs. There, if you're above stairs, you don't, you don't bother to sing or anything like that. But if, you, if you're amongst the servants, you know, then you sing. You're down there with the singers. And uh, he comes on and he brings that whole... Uh, world of, of Moliere and, and the courtly uh, late 17th century French drama um, with him uh, and that is, is a single phenomenon that he can bring that entire world just through that character and everybody else around him plays to it but musically and it's, it's so clever and so brave so bold uh, to have done that, actually, and uh, so when uh, when when the com- when the composer herself talks himself, sorry, uh, talks about uh, the courage of creativity, and that means a lot about him, I think. About although although in in, in this particular case, we're talking about the courage of of co- of being a composer and setting great words to even greater music i mean this is a very bold examination of a of a of a major theme that happens isn't it in that in, when you when you sing that ha- setting great words to music in order to be worthy of doing that you've got to produce even greater music you've got to justify going beyond the one expression to the other and strauss and hoffman style had such an amazing kinship in, in the way they worked together for that so for me i mean the, i get the greatest pleasure imaginable in doing the whole thing believe me 
But that, uh, as, as, as somebody who always wanted to be a play director anyway, and for a while I was, doing that, doing the, the, the prologue is just, uh, always amazes me. Doing, just, just doing it, watching it, making it happen. Wonderful. There are so many interesting views of love in the Strauss-Hoffmann-style operas, and I think of Arabella, I think of Rosenkavalier. Um, so what do we learn in the course of this piece about Hoffmann-style's... Ad- I mean, there's so many different kinds of love in this one piece alone, it seems to me. He believed in the transformative power of love, and that's there in all his pieces, I think. And Strauss, of course, was, was a, a very, very willing um, accomplice in doing that. I think one of the most astonishing things about this particular work is the fact that, that Strauss, Strauss and Hoffmann both believed in, in sincere, uh, demanding, monogamous relationships. They both had absolutely solid marriages and uh, there, there's nothing in any history or any gossip about any of them, really. Either of them, you know, they they believed in that, and and yet Strauss could write the Zerbinetta stuff, you know, in in which she basically says, "Look, you're talking about being transformed, Ducky. I get transformed every time I make love, and it's good, you know." And and you can't actually sit there and say she's lying. You can't. I mean, she's she's quite, quite totally sincere about that, and uh, I, I think that's an astonishing thing. The other element of an Ariane performance that we haven't really talked much about, and we only have about two minutes, but I do want to ask all of you, all five of you, are there moments of Ariadne that strike you purely, uh, just your ear uh, in, in a riveting way, that are purely orchestral? Because the, the contribution of the orchestra to, to a good Ariadne performance is immeasurable. So what is a moment that just stops you dead in your tracks because of a particular color that, that Strauss was able to, to create for his chamber, what is in effect a chamber orchestra. Anyone? For when, me, oh, sorry, go on. When, it's when she's explaining to the Bufi, the composer explains to the Bufi about who Ariadne is, and it's these just amazingly luscious, gorgeous chords when she explains that she's just one in a million and she's that's my. That's probably my favorite part in the whole opera. I was just going to say a piece that you're in. So, <laughs> so it's just what we were talking about, and it seemed more and more clear as as everybody said everything. Was is the moment half? Well, it's towards the end of the the, the last twenty minutes where, and we were talking about love, and it, it seems to be more that the whole thing about the last 20 minutes is a summation of, of what's happened before and the fact that the love that is happening, and, and they were saying no, they don't know who each other is, they can't recognise that, that they will connect with each other. And it seems to me that the whole message of the piece, similarly with our duet, the composer and Zerbinetta, it's people that have, are in trouble or people that have suffered or people that have come from a place of damage or people that all, like as we all are when we arrive and we see we, we fall in love that we are we it's that incredible point of two souls recognizing each other and that they can't help but recognize each other and there's this amazing thing that has happened throughout the prologue and then it happens throughout the last 20 minutes and there's this point where everything stops and suddenly it goes on to another level where you're going on to a spiritual level that they are 
that the love that has built up throughout the evening, the missed moments, whatever it may be, even in this duet, that suddenly it goes and we are beyond ourselves. And it's the point where Ariadne says, well, the orchestra changes and suddenly it's this oscillating strings and you can actually feel your the spirits somewhere in the air. And she says, gibt es kein hinüber, sind wir schon da. Are, are we, is, what, what is the translation? Is this, is this the passage? Are we, have we arrived? Are we, are are we, we there, there yet? Are we, through? Mm. are we there yet? And that is transformation. Yes. That is transformation mm. into a transcendent yeah. place yeah. where we all recognize in ourselves, in, in whatever you want to call love. And it's that moment. I'm kind of partial to, to the prologue also, I must yeah. say, where uh, I think it's amazing the way that Strauss has, is able to, as the composer, bits and pieces of this opera coming together in, in his mind. And, and f- fragments of it are falling from heaven almost, you know, and, and Strauss is able to, to write this. And it's as... as I'm working on any piece. It, uh, all of a sudden, I'll be walking down the, the road and I'll find myself humming a tune of, of, that's in this opera or something that I'm trying to get and I don't even realize they're standing in line at a grocery store and then I'll see somebody turn around behind me. And, 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 and it's kind of the same thing. She's, uh, uh, he's talking to uh, the, the actors and the people around him and, and all of a sudden he gets hit by this inspiration and it's, I guess maybe it's a very, um, something that a lot of, artists go through or these moments of inspiration hit you but Strauss is able to uh to take that and, and, and thread them together in this uh in the beginning of this opera and I I really I really appreciate that I have two spots that I'm thinking of one is Ein schönes far and the chords they're like four or five chords right after that no matter what I'm doing no matter where I am I stop and I go ah oh. I'm just, it's unreal. And then I think at the end, um, when you guys, when the nymphs start singing with you and the orchestra just starts, I mean, we were, I was thinking today, it sounds kind of like a Christmas carol. The bells are, it's just this lush and you just want to lie down and go like this and just have it wash over you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> It's just amazing. It's never anything that I'm singing. It's always, yeah, it's usually Ariadne. We feel the same way, though. The prologue's my favorite part of the whole opera. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. John, do you have a particular orchestral moment that you sort of cherish? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's difficult. You know, I couldn't possibly have a favorite because I'm totally obsessed and beguiled by the whole thing. I'll tell you what I do think we've underappreciated a little bit. Uh, God knows we another three hours I really adore um, Harlequin's song it's really the first time when when the the two things have to converge and this is the first real on stage they're on stage together and uh, all all the buffier are around and there's Madam in the middle uh, trying it's hard to be a bit, you know, superior to all this stuff. And she can't resist, I think, she can't resist the charm of um, of Harlequin's beautiful little song in which she advises her to forget her, the sorrow of, of her past and 
think again, maybe find a new love, maybe, maybe come out of all this and uh, survive and, and go on, move on, as we say nowadays. We'll move on. This piece of advice is so beautiful. And then in the middle of it all, uh, the, the nymphs who, who had their noses put out of joint might be more or less chucked off stage because you know, there wasn't room for everybody. So the nymphs are all <laughs> off stage. And Echo, Echo decides she's not going to put up with this. And so she sings a little echo to his theme. Uh, right, right up in the sky. It's beautiful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you have something extraordinary to look forward to with our Ariana production. I want to thank very much our wonderful panel. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.